Revelation, and we'll see how the prayers uh, that we are to offer to God persistently for justice, how those things come about uh, in the book of Revelation, and then also the way that the people respond and how heaven itself responds when God answers those prayers for justice. Okay, so we'll begin at Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1, and here Jesus gives another parable, the parable of the persistent widow. He says there, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. So here he tells us at the beginning, the reason and the purpose for the parable is to instill in his disciples the need for them to pray and to not lose heart, to not give up. That they're going to pray for certain things and they're not going to receive immediate answers to those things. And whenever that happens, they're not to lose heart. They're not to doubt God, to doubt God's love and kindness and goodness, or to doubt that their prayers are inconsistent with the will of God. But rather they need to continue praying and asking God for these things, knowing that in due time, God will answer them. This is the point of the parable. This is what he is teaching. Verse 2. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. So there's a judge, and he has no fear of God and no respect of man. He's a worthless judge who is of no account. He has no motivation or no basis for why he would execute justice in the land. He has no fear of God, so he doesn't fear the day of judgment. So it's not a fear of God that leads him to perform the duty that is given to him properly. Nor does he respect men. He has no love of his fellow man. So there's nothing that motivates him to do what's right, to give justice to those who deserve it. He is a worthless judge, not unlike many that we have in our own day. Okay, verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Here is a widow, a vulnerable person who's coming to him. She's going to the one who ought to be there to defend her, to protect her, and to grant her relief and justice against her adversary. She has an adversary or an enemy who is treating her unjustly, who is taking advantage of her, and so she goes to the one who ought to dispense justice on her behalf. She goes to the judge, and this is his duty. This is what a judge is there for. To, uh, to acquit or to declare innocence upon those who are righteous and to punish those who are evil. And when an evil person is committing acts of transgression against an innocent person, it is the judge who ought to set these things right by punishing the evil one and giving retribution to the innocent one. So she has an adversary. She goes to the judge and she asks him to give her justice. So this is not her asking unjustly, she has a legitimate reason to ask for justice. Verse 4, for a while he refused. Being a man who neither fears God nor respects man, he does not listen to her. He does not grant the justice that she deserves. But after a while, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Here, the judge, not motivated by love of God, fear of God, nor motivated by love of man. He says it clearly, he declares it, that the reason I'm doing this is not because I've had a reformation. It's not that he has a sense of duty or responsibility or he's come to an awareness of what his responsibility and job is. And now, from this point forward, he wants to do it rightly. 
It has nothing to do with that. He still neither fears God nor respects man. But he's going to give her justice simply to get her to shut up. She's driving him crazy. She won't quit coming to him. She continues to badger him day after day after day, asking for him to give her justice against her adversary. And so just to get her to leave him alone, he says, I'll give you what you want. Leave me alone. You're, otherwise, you're going to beat me down. You keep asking me for this, and you're a nuisance to me. And he wants her to go away. Verse 6, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Now, what did the unrighteous judge say? This is the key. This is the point that we need to learn, right? And that is that I will give her justice. I will give her justice because she is persistent. Because she's persistent, I will give her justice. Verse 7, now the lesson. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. If an unrighteous judge, who neither fears God nor respects men, will grant justice to a widow against her adversary because she persistently comes to him, right? She asks for it and she doesn't lose heart. How much more will God, who is a righteous judge, he's not an unrighteous judge, He is a righteous God who is altogether just and righteous. How much more will he give justice to his elect, to his children, who cry out to him day and night for justice against their adversaries? So in this context, in this passage, he's not just teaching us that we ought to pray persistently. Right? He is teaching that. Right? That is one of the points, and we ought to pray persistently for those things that are consistent with the will of God that are laid out for us. But here in this context, specifically what he's talking about, right? It's not just that we pray persistently, but it's that we pray persistently for a certain thing. And what is that certain thing that Jesus is saying we ought to pray persistently for? Well, in the case with the widow, it's justice against the adversary. And that's what Jesus says for us as well. He will give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night. Why are they crying to God day and night? Why are the elect crying to God day and night? Because they have adversaries. They have enemies. They have those who are children of the devil who hate them because of their righteousness. Right? It's not just. They're not criminals. They're not murderers and thieves. They're not robbing banks. They're not extorting people. All they're doing is living a righteous life, doing those things that are pleasing to God. And yet because of this, their enemies, the children of the devil, those who hate darkness, they hate God. And because they cannot go to heaven and kill God and rail against God and spit in God's face, they take it out on his children. And where can the children go? Where can they go? They can go to God and they can cry out to God, their father, who loves them and who is just. And they can know that God will grant them justice. He will give it to them speedily. It may not seem speedily, right? It may seem like it takes a long time, right? From a human earthly perspective, It may seem like for years their enemies rail against them. For years their enemies persecute them. But they can know for certain that they can pray this prayer. And even if God seems delayed, that God will eventually grant justice to them. 
against their adversary. So here he's teaching them to pray ceaselessly, persistently for justice against their enemies. When we suffer for the sake of righteousness, when we suffer unjustly, right? When we're treated, when we're ridiculed, when we're maligned, when we are persecuted, when we are afflicted by ungodly people, unbelievers, not because we're uh, kicking their dog, we didn't burn their house down, we didn't throw eggs at their children, we haven't done any of these things, but because we testify to the truth of the gospel, because we're not ashamed of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not ashamed of his name, and we're not ashamed of his doctrines. And we teach these things. We rejoice in these things. We proclaim these things. We try to live a godly, upright life. And they respond to our righteousness by repaying it with evil. By ridiculing us, by persecuting us, by maligning us, by doing these things. Then God is telling us that it is good for us, it is consistent for us to continually ask God to grant to us justice against our adversaries. To pray for God to repay them according to what they have done. Now, let's go to Revelation, and we will see that in the book of Revelation, these prayers are answered by God, and that these prayers go up to God, and they're not prayers that he rejects. He doesn't rebuke them for praying these things, but he answers these prayers, showing that these prayers are consistent with the will of God. Right, The prayers for God to give justice and vengeance and how the righteous respond when God answers these prayers. And we'll see. They don't, they don't cry. They don't mourn. They don't weep. When God answers their prayers, they rejoice. They praise God. They thank God for doing these things. Right? We have to understand that vengeance is not a bad thing. Vengeance is a good thing if it's done correctly. Right? It's a bad thing for us to take vengeance into our own hands. Right, we're not teaching that. We don't say that if someone persecutes us, if someone maligns us and treats us wrongly and they strike us in the face, that we go out from here and we go get our gun and we go and shoot them. We don't teach that. We're not saying that. We don't repay their evil with evil. Right? We don't respond. If they violently attack us, we don't go and violently attack them. Right? We don't go out and malign them. We don't go and gossip about them. That's what they do to us. But we don't repay their evil with evil. But we do ask for God to get vengeance. It's good for God to get vengeance. It's evil for us to seek vengeance on our own. We're not vigilantes. We're not saying go out and get retribution for yourself. What the Bible is teaching is that it is good for the children of God. It's actually an expression of faith. For us to pray for God to give vengeance to us. And then to patiently wait for God to do it. Now, if God grants them repentance, true repentance, we will rejoice in those things. And God will still get vengeance because he will avenge their sin on the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus will have paid for their sin. God afflicted that sin on Christ. But if they will not repent, God will wet his sword. He will wet his sword, he will ready his bow, he has fit his arrows, and he will take it out on them. And that that is a good thing. It's good for vengeance to take place. It's evil if we take it into our own hands. That is a sin, but to ask God to do it is good. Right? Just as it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Behold, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. See, that's the key. It's not that vengeance is bad. Vengeance is good. It's bad for you to do it yourself. He says, leave it to God. Leave it to the wrath of God. 
for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God will repay in due time. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. Revelation 6, 9. says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. Here he sees, the apostle sees, under the altar in heaven, souls. Souls of those slain for the word of God and the witness that they had borne. They have been executed on this earth. They have been put to death. And the reason they have been put to death is because of the word of God and the witness that they bore. They did not, they were not ashamed of the word of Christ. But they boldly proclaimed the truths of the gospel. They boldly spoke against sin. They boldly called those of the world to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ. And because of this, they were put to death. So they were not put to death as criminals. But they were unjustly put to death. They were killed for doing what is good and righteous. It's good and righteous to preach the word of God, to testify to the truths of the gospel. This is what they did, and the people responded to this good, which is loving for them to do to the people, and the people repaid them with evil by killing them and putting them to death. Also, we would have to note that these are righteous saints, righteous souls. They're not evil. They are righteous, both in the way that they lived on this earth, but now they are in heaven. They're occupying heaven, so they cannot have sin. So what they pray has to be a righteous prayer. It cannot be a sinful prayer, okay? So what do they pray? Do they pray for the salvation of those who killed them? Well, let's see. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice. They're not ashamed of this. They're not ashamed of the prayer that they're praying. They're crying it out with a very loud voice. With great boldness, they're coming to God. And they say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. They address God as a sovereign Lord. The one who is the sovereign Lord over this entire world. They know that God is the ruler of the earth, to the ends of the earth, and that God is the judge of the earth. And this is who they are appealing to. And that he's also holy and true. He's a holy God who will judge in holiness and he will judge according to the truth. They have been falsely killed. They have been killed in a false way according to lies. Right? They've not done anything evil, but they have been treated as evildoers. And so they're asking God, who is a God of truth, to vindicate them and to show that what happened to them was not according to the truth or according to holiness. And this is what they say. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long? They don't say if God is going to do this. It's not an issue of, God, are you going to do this or are you not going to do this? They know that God's going to do it. What they want to know is how long. How long, God, are you going to make us wait? Right? How long until you avenge us? Right? They've done this to us, and they're itching. Right? They're desirous. They have an expectation that God would execute them and avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth, which is what they say. Will, how long till you judge and avenge? They want God to avenge them. 
This is vengeance is mine. They understand that. They know that. They did not take vengeance on their own, but they're leaving it to the wrath of God. Now they're asking God, when are you going to do that? When will you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Which has to mean what? What does it mean to avenge? To repay. Repay them according to what they have done. They shed our blood. You shed their blood. That's what they're asking God to do. They're asking God to kill them, to execute them, to put them to death and cast them into the lake of fire. How long till you will do this? And then look at what the Lord says. And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Don't you know that I'm a loving God and gracious and kind? I would never do that. He doesn't do that at all. God doesn't rebuke them. He says, yes, I'm going to do it, but you have to wait a little bit longer because I have more of my servants that need to be put to death. I have more servants of mine there who are going to be slain the way that you were, and when the full number is complete, then I will give you retribution. Then I will avenge you. So here, these are righteous souls, and they're praying for God to avenge them against their enemies. And God doesn't rebuke them, but he answers their prayer, and he will surely do it. Chapter 8, verse 3. Chapter 8, verse 3. It says, And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Here, this angel is offering this incense to God, and the incense that goes up is a depiction of the prayers of the saints, right? So the incense that was burnt in the Old Testament in the temple was a physical picture or an illustration of the prayers of God's people going up to God, okay? And in this way here, the incense is the prayers of the saints going up to God before the throne, And it says, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God and from the hand of the angel. And then verse 5 is going to give the answer. It doesn't tell us in verse 4 what it is that they're praying. But then in verse 5, the way that God responds, it tells us what they're praying and asking God to do. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. The way that God responds to their prayers is by taking fire and throwing it to the earth. And then there's thunder, rumbling, lightning, and earthquake. Judgment. He judges the earth because of the prayers of the saints. So they're praying for God to judge the earth. And God answers that prayer by doing it. Chapter 11, verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3, it says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. 
Here, the two witnesses, whenever they are opposed, whenever their enemies rise up against them, they have the authority and power given to them by God through their words to pronounce judgment upon them, and whoever they doom will be killed. God will execute those that they pronounce a curse upon. And then they have the power to shut the sky so that it doesn't rain. Just as Elijah prayed, and it did not rain for three years, so they have the ability to pray that it not rain. And when he did that, he was doing it as a judgment against the people because of their sin. He was praying for God to curse them. And also to turn the water to blood or to blood, and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Just as Moses did, so they also will do. They are praying and executing judgment on the earth. Chapter 14, verse 6. It says, Then I saw another angel uh, flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. He said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea and the springs of water. Here, this angel is calling the people to fear God, to give him glory, because the time, the hour of judgment has come. Right? And this hour of judgment is not something that the angel is ashamed of, that he blushes at. It's not a dirty, dark secret about God that he wants to lock up in the closet and not talk about. But he's openly proclaiming that this is what is going to happen and that this is a good thing. It's good for God to judge the earth. Chapter 15, verse 3. It says, They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Here again, they're praising God for being just and true, for revealing his righteous acts. Chapter 16, verse 4. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Here he's judging them. He's doing a judgment against the people. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Here the angel is not some rogue angel who's acting contrary to the will of God. He is one who is commissioned to do the will of God. And he says, though he's the one who executes the judgment, it is God who has pronounced it. It is God who is the one who is behind it. And that he is a just God who is holy, who has brought these judgments upon the people. And their judgment fits their crime. The punishment fits the crime. They shed the blood of your saints, and now you give them blood to drink. Right? The angel is marveling at the justice of God, and he says, this is good. Because it's what they deserve. They did this to your saints, so they deserve to have it done to them. And then the altar responds, yes, that this is good and right. Just and true is God. It's not a sin for God to do this, nor is it something that they're ashamed of, but they're actually praising God for executing judgment. 
chapter 18, verse 4. It says, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as the heavens, and God has remembered her iniquities. Here, the voice is calling the people of God, the saints, to come out of Babylon, which is a depiction of the world of evil, wicked men. The world of evil men, the world of the wicked. And he's saying, come out of Babylon, lest you take part in her sins. He's calling for the people of God to separate themselves from the people of this world, right? Not in the way that monks do or nuns do by living in a, in a, a monastery or a commune, but what he means here is don't take part in their sins. This is how we separate ourselves from the world. Though we live next door, our next door neighbor might be a worldly person, might be an evil person, but we do not participate in the sins of this world. We don't do what they do. We reject those things, and we don't go to the places where they go. We don't have any part of their sins. He warns them to come out of her, lest you share in her sin, and lest you share in her plague, for her sins are as high as the heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. And then verse 6, pay her back, pay her back, give it to her, right? Pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup that she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. And then verse 19. It says, And they threw dust on their heads and wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city! For all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Here, again, they're talking about the fall of Babylon, the judgment that God brings on Babylon. And when we're talking about that, we're we're not talking about God judging rocks, uh, trees, dirt, buildings, right, streets. It's not the city itself, the, the physical buildings that is the problem. Why is Babylon a problem? It's the people. It's the people who inhabit the city. It's the wicked people who live there and who practice sin. Those are the ones that God is judging. Right? It is the people who commit sin. Not buildings, not streets, not fountains, right? None of those things. It's the people who are being punished. And here in verse 20, The heavens rejoice over her. When they see God execute judgment on Babylon, the wicked people of Babylon, the heavens rejoice. They're happy over this. And the saints, apostles, and prophets rejoice over her. Right? Because God has given them judgment against her. Judgment for you against her. God has judged her for your sake on behalf of you, because of what she did to you. She put you to death. She ridiculed you. She maligned you. She bore false witness against you. She unjustly threw you in prison, right? She killed you. So now I'm going to kill her and give her a double portion of what she has done. Chapter 19, verse 1. 
After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, pure and white. Here, there is a dual worship. On the one hand, they're praising God for judging Babylon, right? They're all praising God. Hallelujah, salvation, amen, praise the Lord. You've brought judgment upon them. You've avenged our blood on her. Her smoke goes up forever and ever as a pleasing aroma to God. Her punishment will be there as a sign of what God thinks of sin, that God is a just God who will by no means clear the guilty. And everyone in heaven is praising God for the judgment that has come upon the ungodly, both small and great. But then also in verses 7 and 6 through 8, there's praise to God for the salvation of the church, for the salvation of the righteous, for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that they have now entered into the kingdom of God. So there's both praise for the destruction of the ungodly, and for the salvation of the righteous. And then one last passage, chapter 22, verse 10. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Here, this is similar to what Ish read earlier from Matthew 23, 29 through 36, when he tells them to fill up then the measure of their father's sins. And this is what he's saying. Those who are destined to evil, the evildoer, he says, let them keep doing evil. Let them keep practicing their evil. And the ones who are filthy, let them keep practicing their filth until the judgment of God comes upon them. But he says, those who are righteous, let them practice righteousness, right? And those who are holy, let them be holy. Right? So let the one devoted to destruction continue running down the pathway headlong into the judgment of God. And let the one who is an object, a vessel of God's mercy, let him separate himself from sin and wickedness and do that which is righteous and holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have a right of the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Here we have a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. This is the distinction that God makes, and it is going to be manifested on the day of judgment. It's not contrary to the purposes of God or the character of God or the glory of God. It actually it brings glory to God as seen and evidence in the book of Revelation. Do not be deceived. 
God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do pray that we would see that all things, Lord, all things work for your good, Lord, for your glory. Lord, they bring about your purposes on this earth. All things have been made for their purpose, Lord, even the wicked for the day of trouble, Lord, and and the righteous for the day of salvation. Lord, you are directing all things according to your counsel and your will. And Lord, we pray that we would receive these things, we would understand your will and your ways, and Lord, that we would live accordingly. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.